Do you enjoy reading ghost stories alone at night? Have you ever binged an entire true crime series? Or do you ever unwind by watching horror films like The Exorcist or reading the supernatural novels of Stephen King? This is the Dublin Gothic Podcast, a series investigating the intersection between art, psychology, folklore, architecture, natural history, and Ireland's urban Gothic writing. I am Dr. Katie Mishler, and my postdoctoral project is Mapping Gothic Dublin, Historical and Literary Hauntings from 1820 to 1900. This work is funded by an Irish Research Council Enterprise Partnership Grant in collaboration with Molly and the UCD Centre for Cultural Analytics. I am joined today by Dr. Christina Morin, who is Senior Lecturer in English at University of Limerick, and Dr. Jason McElligott, the Director at Marsh's Library. And I was wondering if we could get you both to tell me a little bit about your research interest and research background, as well as why you're interested in Gothic literature. And this question is particularly for Christina. Why are you so interested in Charles Matron and Melmoth the Wanderer. Great. Thanks, Katie, and thanks for inviting us to be here today. Um, as you mentioned, I, I lecture in English at the University of Limerick, and I suppose um, I would describe myself as an Irish Gothic specialist because that is really my research expertise. Um, my interest in Matron stems really from my PhD research, um, which I undertook with um, Professor Ian Campbell Ross at Trinity College Dublin. And my first book was a study of Charles Robert Matron, and particularly his six novels. Um, and then I followed that up with a, a more kind of general study of Irish Gothic literature, but not the Irish Gothic literature that we might be more familiar with, like Dracula, but earlier 18th century Irish Gothic. Um, so yeah, so my interest in Mammoth the Wanderer is just... I, <laughs> I'm really a big Charles Matron fan. I'm a huge fan of the novel. Um, I think it's seriously underrated. And um, Jason and I had been chatting about, you know, trying to do something about Matron and his connection to Marsh's Library for a number of years. And when um, the 200th anniversary of the publication of Mammoth the Wanderer rolled around last year, um, we thought this would be a perfect opportunity. Now, obviously, COVID intervened, but we're forging ahead anyway. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, and Jason, what? So, do you have a specific history in the Gothic or in Matron? Where Where did your interest stem from? No, my background is as a 17th century historian, really, and somebody who specialised in in printed books and and print culture, and that has sort of led me over the course of, of the last decade or so to get more interested in not just when these books were printed and published in the 17th century, uh, but how they were subsequently used uh, by subsequent generations of politicians, but also uh, writers and, uh, and literary figures. So I found myself almost by accident in the, in the 19th century uh, reading uh, various uh, literary works and thinking, hang on, I recognise that reference. Uh, I'll go to the footnotes in a particular you know, scholarly edition, and it's not footnoted because the scholar of the 19th century knows the 19th century references and perhaps even the late 18th century references, but they don't necessarily get the 17th century printed references. And so I've realised over the past decade or so that there's a there's a whole sort of history there in people like Bram Stoker but also political figures of the 19th century for whom the print culture of the 17th century was almost a contemporary reference that it, it wasn't as obscure as as we would find it uh, today so that's really where I've come to to from looking at uh, 17th century print culture and uh, I developed initially a, an interest in Bram Stoker uh, and then uh, uh, from uh, knowing and, and working with uh, Tina realising that there were similar things going on uh, in Maturin's uh, novel. So that's really where it comes from. It's a roundabout uh, thing is that uh, I would say when I started off I knew absolutely uh, nothing about the Gothic. I would have found it very hard to even define what the Gothic was but in reading those novels from a position of almost perfect perfect ignorance, I was able to spot things that perhaps more specialists weren't able to. From based on what I know about the exhibition, and I want to hear you both talk about that in a minute, it sounds like it's 
the perfect project for both of your research interests and areas of expertise. And I wonder if before we talk about the actual exhibition, if Tina, you could tell us what Charles Matron's Melmoth Wanderer is about. Okay. Um, in some ways, it's kind of a difficult question because it's a notoriously kind of convoluted text. But um, at its heart, it's it's a kind of series of nested tales, um, all of which tell of Melmoth the Wanderer, who is this kind of um, Faustian figure who's made a pact with the devil for forbidden knowledge um, and is doomed as a result to wander the earth for 150 years looking for a replacement. And the novel Matron tells us in the preface um, is is based on on a passage from one of his sermons where he argued that there is nobody so desperate that would actually accept um, who would actually accept a, a kind of um, bargain that Melmoth is offering. Um, and so um, the novel then, as I say, is, is a series of nested tales where we see Melmoth tempting another individual. And we kind of roam all over the world. We go, and all, and, and all over time, basically. Um, we go from 19th century Ireland to um, Restoration England to Inquisition Spain. Um, and all of these stories, disparate as they seem, are connected by the figure of Melmoth. Um, so that's the the kind of <laughs> um, simple version. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great overview because it is such a long kind of sprawling novel and it is a series of tales within tales. So there's not one full plot. It's a series of interrelated plots. And Jason, could you tell us a li- for our listeners who aren't familiar with Marsh's library, could you just give us an overview of the history of Marsh's as well? Yes, well, the library opened to the public in 1707. It was the first public library in Ireland. And until 1878, when the National Library opened on Kildare Street, it was still the only public library in Dublin. So there is a collection uh, founded in the early 18th century, successively from the foundation in 1707 until about 1740. There are four collections that come in uh, from pretty significant scholars in their own time and in their own right. And there are 20,000 books. By about 1745, the library was full. And after about 1745, there are a number of offers of donations and the library pretty much says, no, thanks, we're full, essentially. So it becomes almost a museum of what a library was like in the early 18th century. And it happens to survive almost by accident, I suppose, by benign neglect uh, and by a lack of finances to, to make any uh, changes. Uh, and really, the collections are primarily 16th and 17th century. So if you imagine you're opening a public library in the early 18th century, but it's primarily stocked with 16th and 17th century books. So even in the 18th century, it wasn't contemporary. It wasn't up to date with the latest and best literature. So throughout the 18th and into the early 19th century, it becomes a little bit of a backwater. Uh, If you were looking for uh, the latest novel, you just wouldn't find it. If you were looking for the latest scientific works, you just wouldn't find them. But what it does mean is that because the library happens to survive uh, accidentally across the centuries and because it's frozen in time, uh, we do have a series of readers who come in throughout the 19th and 20th century reading themselves back into uh, the past. So one of the first people we can trace doing that is the teenaged Bram Stoker in the 1860s, in 1866 and 1867. We can also track a a teenaged James Joyce going in uh, in 1902. Uh, And although the records, the direct archival records don't survive before 1828, for the library, we have uh, strong indications that Charles Robert Maturin read extensively in the library throughout the uh, 1810s. Excellent. So can you tell me a little bit about this exhibition and how it incorporates both the materials at Marsh's and, as you're saying, it has this really rich intellectual history and it has contributed to, I think, Irish intellectual history and Dublin intellectual history, and how it incorporates that history and also um, the history of 
Matron's text. Sure, the exhibition is called Ragged, Livid, and on Fire, The Wanderings of Melmoth at 200. As I noted earlier, we were kind of really, um, I suppose, inspired or, or motivated by the 200th anniversary of the publication of Melmoth the Wanderer, which came out initially in 1820. Um, but the exhibition itself is is considering in detail the intertextuality of the novel um, and all of the different references that Matron was making, all of the allusions, direct and indirect, to other texts in his novel. Um, because it is a very densely elusive novel, a densely intertextual novel. Um, and so essentially what we did was just sit down and look through the novel and um, and Jason has kept a running kind of um, list of the of the different um, allusions there. And I suppose part of the problem finding these allusions or, or dealing with these allusions is that Matron generally doesn't cite his sources, right? So you're looking for quotations that aren't often put in quotation marks, etc. Um, so yeah, so what the exhibition tries to do is, is to think about these intertextual references and how they might link to what Matron would have been reading in Marsh's library. And as Jason says, we don't we don't know specifically because we don't have those those records, but we can make a kind of pretty educated guess that this is what he was looking at while he was there. So. No, that's um, that's great. And can you tell me what type of materials you think he read at Marsh's and how you think these materials that he consulted contributed to the final text of Melmoth the Wanderer? Yeah, the for me, the, the most intriguing thing was that at some point after his death, his papers went missing. So there, there was traditionally a story that the family had burned the papers because there was so much in them that would have been harmful to his posthumous reputation. Whether or not that's true, the papers just don't exist. So uh, really what we have are a series of contemporary or near contemporary references where uh, somebody says, look, I saw Maturin reading or I was a friend of Maturin's and he would read in a particular way. And essentially he seems to have been uh, uh, a voracious but chaotic and disorganised reader. And there's a, a particular account from the 1820s just after his death of the fact that Maturin would get distracted. Uh, he'd read one book and he'd take down another book and he'd get distracted by that and he'd forget what he'd just read. And, you know, it was all this kind of chaos going around uh, in his head. So I suppose one of the things that I, I wonder was that if we could even ask Maturin now what it was that he read, I suspect he wouldn't be able to tell us exactly what it was he read because he was just so voracious and so chaotic uh, in his reading. So there's, there's no sense in which the exhibition says that this is all he read uh, because I think he definitely read at Marsh's library. We know that he would have read at Trinity. He had access to uh, other libraries from friends and so on. But this is a a good snapshot of the type of material when you look at the novel uh, is in Marsh's library that he would have had access to both in the library uh, and sometimes uh, in other in other places uh, as well so it's a it's a sort of it, in some ways for scholars like my, myself and Tina it's a difficult thing to argue from because we're arguing from an absence so it would be great uh, wouldn't it Tina if we had his notebooks and we could we could reconstruct them so but it's not entirely fanciful because we're able to go to the novel and we're looking at some texts which are now extremely rare but even in the 1820s were very rare and to come across these books there were only a small number of places in which you would have come across them so that's really what we're trying to find we're trying to find the general reading pattern but also specific instances where we can say aha that's a particularly rare book it's quite strange that somebody in the 1820s is reading something from a particular date in the 1630s for example and i I think all of this is really, really fascinating, especially what you're saying about Matron as a reader. I read this somewhere, and I couldn't find any evidence of it, but I read somewhere that when he would read in um, Marshes, he would have a um, communion, communion wafer. wafer. Yeah. 
I, I think that's an apocryphal. I mean, there are lots of apocryphal tales that circulated about Matrin and, and still fill the pages of the early biographies of Matrin um, that came out in the 1970s. Um, uh, and I mean, I think the version I heard was that this was actually when he was at home, he would paste the communion wafer on his forehead so that his very large family would know not to disturb him. Um, and and Matrin, um, you know, he was a very eccentric character. Um, he had wanted to be an actor as as a child and, and really only went into the church because um, his family needed kind of basically in financial dire straits. And, and obviously the theater wasn't a, a kind of an acceptable career either. Um, so he was well known for being quite eccentric. Okay, so he was quite the character both yeah. in marshes and outside of marshes as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that's partially why any personal papers that would have been around after his death may have been burned by family members or, or destroyed by family members. Like what we do know about Matt Trin comes from his correspondence with Walter Scott, which was which Walter Scott kept because he was concerned with his posterity. Um, so yeah, there is that absence there. And so I guess this, what this exhibition is essentially trying to do is sort of recreate an archive or recreate um, a library of materials that he would have used in an absence of other things that don't exist, essentially. Um, so thinking about the exhibition and the materials you've discovered in your research, do you have a favorite book that you discovered he looked at or a favorite source that you found? I'm not going to, I'm not going to pinpoint one. Um, some of the texts are, are fantastic. Um, um, there's the, the history of the Vaudois with the, with the images that are just are, are just really intense. Um, I think the thing for me, what the research has, has kind of revealed is is just how densely intertextual this novel is. Um, it's something that, you know, I was aware of, knew that, that Melmoth was very um, intertextual and that there were lots of different references to, to a really wide um, and diverse range of texts. But um, really digging into it, it's just extraordinary how many um, references there are and, and how diverse they are, both chronologically and kind of thematically. We've had to limit ourselves, Tina and I, to presenting about 34 or 35 books because it could have continued on, you know, almost uh, ad infinitum, looking at a, a range of, uh, of different texts. Uh, if I were to choose... Uh, one, I'd, I'd probably have to choose two, which uh, which is a terrible <laughs> thing to, to, to say to, to somebody. Uh, but uh, the one specific one I, I would choose, which is a really strange thing for him to have been referring to in Melmoth the Wanderer, there's a portion at the start where uh, Stanton, the, the, the hero, uh, and, and Melmoth and, and are in Restoration London, and there's a reference back then to uh, a text which was produced in the 1630s, and it's so obscure, even for historians of the 17th century. It's a book called History of Mastics. It's produced by William Prynne, who was a Puritan preacher. Uh, and it had a particular notoriety because it attacks the, the it attacks stage plays, but it had a particular notoriety because in it, uh, Prynne attacked actresses, as he says, and these are his words, uh, notorious whores. Now, Prynne was really unfortunate because his book appeared several months after Queen Henrietta Maria, the wife of Charles I, had appeared in a play uh, at the royal court. So it was taken as a seditious libel attack on the Queen. He was sentenced to life imprisonment, fined £5,000 and had both his ears chopped off. So it's a, it's a pretty notorious episode of the 1630s. So you think that's quite a strange thing to be referring to. And I think he refers to it two or three times uh, throughout the novel. And in the context that he does, he refers to it again in, in another uh, episode, which is linked into it, the controversy about men playing female roles. And there's a, there's a part in, in Prynne's History of Mastics in which he refers to how 
ungodly it is for men to play women's roles on the stage because it induces lascivious thoughts in the uh, in the minds of the audience particularly the male audience and you think well, that's an interesting thing for a for a puritan to have noticed uh, in the 1630s and then when you go to the copy of Histriomastix in Marsh's library and you open it, it falls open uh, at that section because the only <laughs> thing that anyone seems to have been interested in across the centuries who read that book, because the, you, know, you can always tell when a book has been read over the centuries because the, the way it opens or the way it cracks. No one has read that book across the centuries apart from opening it at the bit where people were obviously guffawing in the, in the 17th and 18th century, going, look at this, this is hilarious. And, you know, we'd love to be able to say, well, it's, the book is cracked at this part because this is what Matrim was looking at. But what we can say is that contemporaries throughout the period in which that book has been in the library have been interested in one particular passage only. And that's about basically men in drag and lascivious thoughts which they engender in their viewers. <laughs> that's amazing. I was not expecting that at all. Um, and I also, I love the way that you bring the, the materiality of the book into it and how that shows the history of the book and how there's almost a physical trace. Like we're saying, there's no archive or no papers of Matron, but we still can see these physical traces of what he, and as you're saying, other people were reading and looking at. Um, you mentioned two favorites. Do you have, what's the other favorite? Yeah, it's the one time that Tina and I were able to pin down a particular page in a particular book. Uh, so there is a, there is, there has long been a famous book in the in the library, and it's the it's the copy of Clarendon's History of the Rebellion that. Uh, was owned by Jonathan Swift. And throughout the 19th century, we know that when any VIP came to the library, this is what they showed them. And we know that, for example, when Maturin's friend, Sir Walter Scott, came to the library, just after Maturin's death, this is the book they showed Scott. And Scott comments on the fact that they showed me all of Swift's marginal annotations, all of which are nasty comments on the Scots. Uh, so Swift has basically spent his time going through the three volumes of this book, annotating really nasty comments on the Scots, Scottish dogs, Scottish, uh, Scottish devils. Uh, my favourite one is cursed, abominable, hellish, Scottish villains, everlasting traitors, etc., 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 written by Swift in, in the margin. So he's com completely obsessed. Uh, is is one kind way uh, to put it, and there is a reference in Melmoth the Wanderer to a particular uh, incident. He, he refers to a Scottish treachery around a particular incident, which as a historian of the 1640s, I knew what he was referring to, and it was Scottish treachery at Carisbrook Castle. And it's, that's just, it's not referred to in, in any other uh, sense. And it's basically negotiations that are going on in mid-December 1647 between the Scottish commissioners who've come south during the English Civil War and they say to Charles I, who's in prison in Carisbrook Castle, if you sign the engagement to bring in a Presbyterian form of government in England, we will bring an army south and we will free you and we will fight Parliament. And then they go back on their word and they uh, betray him. Uh, and in the context, when you go to Swift's copy of uh, the particular page in Hyde's and Clarendon's history of the, the rebellion. I should say that I refer to him as Hyde and Clarendon because uh, Edward Hyde becomes the Earl of Clarendon. So let's just say Clarendon's history of the rebellion. When you go to that particular page dealing with the Scots negotiations and treachery of Charles I in mid-December 1647, uh, and you look at it, it is heavily annotated with Swift's comments on Scots treachery. Uh, and that's exactly the passage that uh, Maturin refers to, and he ref refers to specifically Scott's treachery, looking at that particular page. That's so interesting. And again, I love how the, you're incorporating the marginalia into this exhibition and into this work you're doing, and how, you know, by visiting marshes, I feel like Maturin himself is engaging in a conversation with, as you're saying, Swift and 
other authors as well. It sounds really, really fascinating and really, really interesting. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to add about the exhibition and how you put it together? Um, I suppose I should say I should say that this is funded by um, an Irish Research Council New Foundations Award, um, and we're going to be launching the exhibition um, at a basically we're going to have like a matron fest on October 29th, um, and we're having a symposium um, with um, specialists of, of matron and, and Irish Gothic um, speaking at Marsh's Library. Um, and there's also going to be a public reading of excerpts of the novel in St. Patrick's Cathedral um, that afternoon um, with um, guests such as um, Joseph O'Connor and Daryl Jones reading from the novel. And then we're going to follow that up with the launch of the exhibition, which will be open to the public um, that evening at Marsh's Library. That's excellent. And the exhibition, it will be both online and person. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So um, when we launch it on the 29th, um, obviously, um, you know, visitors will be able to walk around Marsh's library and see it in person, um, but we'll also publish it online on Marsh's um, website. That's great. And I know many people are very excited at the prospect of not only going to exhibitions and museums in person, but also being able to attend live events. So this will definitely be a very special launch, I think. And I'm personally looking forward to the reading in St. Patrick's because I think that'll be the perfect atmosphere for the event. Um, so maybe we could also talk a little bit about the legacy of Melmoth the Wanderer, because I also think your exhibition is engaging with its legacy. And um, Christine, I know your book, your first book, at the end, it also talks about where we have yet to go when we study Matron and we talk about Matron, who is a very underrepresented figure in Irish literary history. So if we think about Melmoth at 200 years, what relevance do you think the novel Melmoth the Wanderer has for contemporary readers. And I also want to ask both of you whether you would recommend people to read it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I definitely recommend reading it. I mean, I do think I, I will be the first to admit that it can be a difficult read because it is, um, it, it, it is, it, it's a convoluted text. Um, Jason and I were chatting um, before though, um, when you know the history of the novel, um, I mean, the, the structure of the novel has exercised scholars for, for decades. Um, but Sharon Ragas recently has shown, um, looking at the um, correspondence of Constable, the publisher, that actually um, the composition process of Melmoth the Wanderer was very chaotic. And Matron um, seems to not have been able to settle down to writing the novel. Um, and Constable, meanwhile, is getting more and more frustrated. And why haven't you sent me more copy? Matron's writing back saying, well, it must have got lost in the post. And and so that the what, what Sharon Ragas argues is basically that this kind of end product that we get in Melmoth the Wanderer is kind of a result of this protracted kind of conversation between Matron and his publisher. Um, and initially, the idea of the novel is that it was going to be a series of tales um, that Matron intended initially to serialize and then publish in, in novel form. Um, and for somebody who was so financially strapped as Matron, that makes total sense, right? Because he's got this figure who could potentially um, go on forever and inspire any number of short stories. Um, so I think when you have that kind of context in mind, it makes the novel a little bit more approachable, a little bit more accessible. Um, but I also always tell my students that it's a novel that repays many readings <laughs> because you get more each time you read it. Um, so that's what I would say in terms of reading it. I think in terms of the legacy, Matron, I mean, he, he's this kind of anomalous figure, isn't he? Um, because he often is named as one of these kind of canonical Irish gothicists. Um, and when we think of Irish Irish Gothic in quotation marks, right? Um, we think of Matron, we think of Stoker, we think of Lefanu, we think maybe of Wilde, right? Um, and yet Melmoth Wanderer is seen as this kind of Gothic masterpiece, but also a really weird novel, right? It comes too late for the, the kind of heyday of late 18th century Gothic, and it comes too early for Irish Gothic, quote unquote, of the late 19th century. Um, 
And even though it was widely read in the in the period, it was condemned by critics as being basically the product of insanity, right? Like Matron, in fact, one reviewer speaks of Matron's genius, but it's the genius of insanity, right? Um, so I think it, it, it has a, um, a much wider appeal, particularly in, in France um, and in Europe. Um, um, but for whatever reason, it, it hasn't, it, it doesn't really seem to get read a whole lot nowadays, even though, ironically, it, it's, I think, never been out of print or, or it's almost never been out of print since it was published in 1820. So, yeah, it's kind of a, a tough one to figure out. Um, yeah, Jason, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think the not being a, a literary scholar myself, the, the words a canonical book almost, you know, they, they strike fear into me because, <laughs> you know, it sounds like this is a book you have to read. It's, it's good for you whether you like it or not. <laughs> And what's been really interesting in, in working with you, Tina, on this exhibition is, is realising that the novel is written in a particular time for, for a market. Maturin is trying to sell books. He's trying to earn money from this. This is not something intended as an academic book. It's intended for the market. He has quite a bit of success in the 1810s with the novels going into circulating libraries and people reading uh, them and them being uh, commented upon, however favorably uh, or not. But it, but it is something that is produced in 1820 to be read and it's great to think that when we're looking at him now in this exhibition, we're not necessarily looking at him as a canonical author. We're actually looking at him as somebody in a particular time and place, as you're saying, who has a, who has a publisher on his back saying, give me that copy. I want the copy. And, and, and he's hassled. He's trying then to put together a text from the voluminous reading that he's done, taking little bits uh, and pieces. And that's really, really interesting to think of him as, a, as an author in a commercial marketplace, trying to survive, trying to produce the best text that he possibly can. Uh, but as my uh, years ago, as my PhD supervisor said to me, you never write the book that you want to write. You only ever write the book that you can in the circumstances in which you find yourself. And that's exactly what he's doing. Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting point. Because um, Maturin routinely says um, in his in the kind of paratexts of his of his novels that, and indeed in his correspondence with Walter Scott, routinely says that the only reason he writes is because he has to, um, he has to earn money. Um, so, which of course is disingenuous, but um, he really did see himself as as kind of a professional author, um, and and. Um, and, and was very bitter about the fact that he didn't really earn a lot of money for his novels. And <laughs> in fact, in one of his, his letters to Walter Scott, who um, you know famously became a novelist, turned from poetry, having been like the leading best-selling poet of the Romantic period, then started writing um, fiction in um, 1814 with publication of um, Waverly, but he doesn't actually um, announce his authorship of the of the Waverly novels until much much later. Though it's kind of a, an open secret. And at one time, um, Matron writes to Scott and says, "Who is this author of Waverly? Why can't he just let the rest of us earn our bread?" Um, <laughs> so anyway, there's this whole conversation going on in his letters and in in the the kind of paratext of his novels about the the like actual financial need that he was trying to meet by writing. And he had expensive tastes as well. He, <laughs> he, he got a little bit of money from Bertram, which uh, was the play performed in 1816. At Drury Lane, yeah. Yeah, and so he, uh, you can see any of the dates with the, the, the novel or any of the specialism on the, on Matron, I, I have to kind of ask if, I, if I'm right before, before I say anything. But so, uh, so Matron had got some money for, for Bertram and then he proceeded to blow it and he blew it pretty much on redecorating and beautifying his house in, in York Street. There was a, a ballroom yeah. put in. Yeah. There was There's a story of thrones. Yes, an apocryphal tale of, of um, Matron and his wife Henrietta um, sitting at the, the top of the ballroom in, in thrones. <laughs> 
yeah. and no expense spared no. on uh, painting, redecorating, and so on. So he obviously thought with the with the playing of Bertram, which was a great success in London, and then its publication in 1870, he thought, right, this is it, I've, I've got it made. And then he has a series of flops over the, the next couple of years. So he did find himself in, in increasing uh, difficulty. So... Uh, and you do find him becoming uh, increasingly angry, but I think as well increasingly desperate as well. And he's got himself into a cycle of, you know, by the end, you can imagine the misery of him being hassled by the publisher uh, to get Melmoth out. And uh, he's had a couple of failures and he's obviously not clear that Melmoth will, it's it's hard to imagine, but he, he obviously couldn't know that Melmoth would be his enduring legacy he would have I'm sure at the time if he was asked what would stand the test of time it probably would have been Bertram yeah the play that probably hasn't been replayed in in the last 150 years I'd say yeah I don't know off the top of my head but I would I would have serious doubts that it's ever been performed in in after uh, after the 19th century I mean it was the runaway success of the 1816 season but um and it, it featured Edmund Keane which was partially um, what, what, what made it succeed? But um, yeah, it, it's not nearly remembered as much as as Melmoth. So, in terms of Dublin, because I know you're talking about his sort of ostentatious lifestyle, his redecorating, redecorating his home in York Street, which I believe no longer exists. I believe right. it's it's where the Royal College of Surgeons is. Yeah, exactly. Now. It was torn down in the seventies, I think, or, or at the end of the sixties, um, to make way for the Royal College of Surgeons. Yeah. Yeah. And so, what was his relationship with Dublin like? Where did he fit in society? at the time and how how did he feel about Dublin and I suppose how did Dublin feel about him <laughs> well I, I think Vatrin has a very conflicted kind of relationship with Dublin um, he was born in Dublin he was raised in Dublin he attended Trinity College um, when he took orders in 1803 he was sent to Lochray County Galway and by all accounts country life just didn't suit him at all um, and he returned to Dublin um, I think just two years after being first sent to Loch Ray. Um, and that's when he began working, uh, or um, he began serving in St. Peter's Church in Angier Street. And he maintained that position as, as curate of, of St. Peter's Church until his death in 1824, which in some ways is extraordinary in itself. Um, as curate, he wouldn't... Uh, Jason was saying that this was one of the, the most affluent parishes um, in contemporary Dublin, but he wouldn't have made a lot of money as curate. Um, and the the kind of analogy it, it's a it's a pop culture reference that obviously reveals my age, but also um, is is a Catholic reference. But it it works. Um, like Matron was the Dougal to Father Ted, and he never got to be Father Ted, right? Um, so he's always this kind of underling. He's never never the main man in St Peter's Church. Um, and I think that kind of exasperates um, his financial sist- uh, situation, and he feels quite bitter towards the church because he feels as if the church is is purposely keeping him down. Um, and um, he, yeah, and and so in one of his letters to to Scott, he he talks about. He, he gives this very vivid description of of what he of the situation he finds himself in, and he says that he envies Scott his his Highlands um, and the and the fresh air of the of of um, the Highlands and and where he finds himself faced in front or in front of a brick wall with smoke steaming everywhere and a withered mint plant on the on the windowsill. I mean, it's a very kind of um, grim depiction of Dublin. Um, and, and you get the sense from Matron that intellectual life in Dublin just isn't very vibrant. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's really true. And, and there's a sense in which he has, he is the curate of the, the biggest and most prosperous Anglican parish in Dublin. 
there are the great and the good of Protestant Dublin uh, in his church. Uh, he's definitely frustrated uh, in intellectually, but also there's there's a sense in which he just doesn't have the common sense in some ways that he needs to get on in the society in which he finds himself. So he appeals to various senior clerics for better positions. And I think a number of them try to do things initially for him, but there is uh, there is a, a, a letter to Scott in which he says, I've approached the Bishop of Mead to, to find something for me, and he seems well inclined. And then there is a separate letter from the Bishop of Mead to Scott saying, listen, I, I've tried to do stuff for him, but he has no sense. He does, does not keep his mouth shut. You know, he just cannot stop saying controversial things. He cannot stop annoying people. Uh, he's an extremely bright young man, but he just doesn't have the sense that you have to have when you're very bright of how to manage people and engage politically. So uh, his ostentatious lifestyle, his love of dancing, his love of himself, uh, and then writing the novels, putting them all together with not necessarily being able to cultivate the great and the good uh, of Dublin means that, yeah, he's increasingly frustrated uh, as time goes on. And do you think this is reflected in his legacy historically? Because there really aren't any traces of Matron left in Dublin. The I think St. Peter's Church is on Angers Street is now a YMCA. And as you mentioned, the house he lived in on York Street is now the Royal College of Surgeons. I couldn't locate where he was born. I don't know if you've been able to do that, Christina, or not. No, I haven't um, okay. I'm done that. But it would be interesting. I mean, because one of the things in my, in my book on Matron, um, you know, is this idea that the cultural legacy of Matron has essentially been wiped out. Um, and that extends to the, the kind of physical traces of Matron and his life here. So his York Street home is gone. Angels, uh, St. Peter's Church is, is now YMCA. Where he was buried, his remains were actually reinterred. You can't actually visit his grave. There's no plaque to Matron anywhere in Dublin. If you go off to Loch Ray, um, the church that he served in Loch Ray has a kind of um, information board and they mention Matron having served there. But but really Matron has been kind of erased from the, these kind of physical, the physical or the city's memory um, and from our cultural memory of of this, uh, of 19th century Irish literature. Um, and it's interesting because, I mean, he was such an eccentric, you would think that he would kind of appeal. And certainly he had a certain appeal. Um, we Like, for instance, Oscar Wilde paid homage to him by taking the name Sebastian Melmoth when he was in exile in France. Um, so he really, Oscar Wilde, who was Matron's um, great-nephew by marriage, you know, obviously there's, there's this appeal to Matron and, and to his eccentricity. So in some ways, I don't really quite understand why he hasn't been remembered more. Um, yeah, I don't know. What do you think, Jason? Yeah, just looking at the, the destruction of Dublin in the in the 60s and 70s and, and 80s, it, it is shocking just how little survives, not just of, like, his parish church is gone, yeah. the graveyard is gone, as you say, York Street is gone, but even many of the places that he would have uh, frequented, he, he, even down to you know the the cemetery around the the, the corner, essentially the Huguenot non-conforming cemetery, which is now the the car park, essentially a tarmarked car car park. Uh, they're they're all gone. So one of the reasons why we were interested in doing the exhibition is that one of the very few places in Dublin which is still the same and is demonstrably the same as it was when Matron was there is the interior uh, of Marsh's library in which we can demonstrate that nothing has changed in, internally. Now externally roads have been built around, various buildings around have, have been destroyed but internally that library is uh, exactly as he would have found it uh, 200 years ago. So that's one of the reasons why it's it's good to do uh, the exhibition uh, within that space because it is as I say one of the few spaces in the in the city which he would be able to come back to uh, his ghost would be able to come back to and recognize uh, absolutely. 
Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that makes marshes so special is it is a time capsule, essentially. It's a moment in time that has been preserved. And you mentioned Matron's ghost visiting there. So I thought maybe I could ask you, Jason, if you have any ghost stories or spooky stories about marshes. I've heard tale of a mummy that appeared. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Funny you should say that. Last week we had... uh, we had somebody who came into the library and said, uh, I'm a paranormal investigator uh, and I'd really like to stay overnight in the library. <laughs> uh, we have quite a few of them uh, who come in regularly and uh, my response is always, that's great, there's no problem, uh, but to stay overnight costs 10,000 euros. Uh, so it's sort of one way to deal with the uh, persistent requests for people to stay overnight with uh, ghost hunting uh, equipment. Uh, I did find a woman a few years ago uh, during the Bram Stoker Festival who had broken away from a tour uh, and had gone into one of the bays and had some holy water, uh, a crucifix and some rosary beads and she was trying to summon the ghost of Archbishop Marsh and she looked really crestfallen when I told her that Archbishop Marsh was a Protestant so obviously he wouldn't have anything to do with holy water and rosary beads and she looked at me sort of quizzically and I just thought listen I'm not getting into explaining the reformation to her now I'm just going to get her out of the bay because I don't want her holy water on on the books because water is very bad for for books so so look we we, we've this long-standing uh culture of of people telling ghost stories about uh Marsh's library uh many of them you know they're 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 passed down through the generations I didn't really believe the the story about the mummy. There was a long-standing story when I started that there had been an Egyptian mummy found in one of the cupboards, uh, and I didn't believe it at all until the anatomy department in Trinity contacted me about five years ago and said, "Uh, did you ever have a mummy by any chance? (laughs) And I said, well, it's a story. And they said, well, we think we found it. Uh, And when they were renovating the anatomy theatre under the anatomy theatre in Trinity, they had found a coffin Uh, and inside it was a mummy in bandages and uh, their records indicated that it had come from Marsh's library in 1889 and uh, there is indeed a story in the Irish Times from 1888 uh, of uh, a member of staff, God love him, finding uh, this coffin inside one of the cupboards (laughs) and it having a mummy uh, inside it. So our colleagues in Trinity had done some carbon dating on the mummy and it goes back to 1500 BC in Egypt. So it is an Egyptian uh, mummy. It's about four and a half feet tall uh, and it's probably of somebody in their in their late teens, uh, according uh, to the DNA. And it seems to have been given to Archbishop Marsh by one of his friends, who was an Oriental scholar. Uh, and it was quite common at the time for coffins and, and mummies to be sort of exported from from the Near East as as cultural curiosities. And it lay in the cupboard uh, until 1888 when Marshes found the mummy and the first thing they thought was, oh no, there's going to have to be an inquest. A dead body on the premises, there has to be an inquest. So what do you do? You get rid of the body. Give it to Trinity. By, give it to Trinity. <laughs> and Trinity promptly lost it. So uh, It sounds like they knew exactly what to do with it and yeah, just buried it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they didn't. Uh, and, you know, so I went down and I thought, God, this is going to be great. You know, we... I'll, I'll get the mummy back and uh, we'll stick it in, in, in the library. And sure, people will be pouring in. Like, it'll be great. Uh, but unfortunately, it was so creepy. Uh, f- firstly, because uh, Trinity had experimented on it and they'd removed the head. So it is a headless mummy. Uh, which is bad enough as it is. Uh, the bandages are still in good stead, but the little fingernails and the toenails are p- poking out through the, the bandages. And I think it was really just the location in, in which they showed it to me in the anatomy building uh, with a whole series of glass jars around with you know bits of human bodies in them uh, and a smell of that antiseptic smell, formaldehyde and so on. So 
having gone down there thinking, great, I'm taking the body and I'm going to have a great tourist attraction uh, with an Egyptian mummy, I just thought there's no way I'm taking that. That is far too uh, creepy and, and stomach turning. So yes, there, there, there is an Egyptian mummy and, uh, and as far as I know, Trinity still have them. I hadn't heard all of that story, so I really appreciate you enlightening us on the rest, including the fate of the mummy. Um, is there any chance there's any mummies in Melmoth the Wanderer? I don't think so, but... I don't think there are any mummies in Melmoth. Um, we don't go to Egypt in Melmoth. No. Maybe no. that was planned in one of the sequels that were ne or one of the, yeah, the maybe, stories. Maybe so. He does reference the elk in uh, another Trinity con connection. Um, the um, ancient Irish elk. Um, in Trinity at the time. Yeah. yeah. He, he was aware of the museum in Trinity. Yeah. Uh, so he probably would have been aware of the, the, the Irish giants, isn't it? They're, they still have in the anatomy building in Trinity, they still have the the giant who was I think was he seven foot six okay. uh, and uh, from the 17th century so you know Matron would have would have known that it's interesting because because there are a few references to museums mm. and sort of collections and cabinets mm -hmm. of curiosities but mm -hmm. no nothing about nothing about the mummy no. uh, as such mm. well this is great thank you guys so much I'm out of questions but is there anything else you want to add um, I should say that I will will be circulating event brights for the various um, parts of the of the celebration on the 29th. Um, uh, there will be certain limitations to numbers, <laughs> so if you're interested, get on Eventbrite. Right, and just to say, the exhibition it opens on the 29th of October, but it will run till the end of March. So people will have a a lot of opportunity to uh, come in and explore the the exhibition, uh, explore uh, the books. Uh, we hope it'll be a, a, a kind of a good mixture of something which has a has a serious. Uh, basis, but is also quite fun in some of the the books that that we're showing, and there will be an online version as well. So if you can't get to Dublin in the, in the time frame, you will be able to find it uh, online at uh, www.marshlibrary.ie. Yeah, no, that sounds great. I'm very excited to see everything. Thank you both so much for coming here, especially coming all the way to well, Christina coming all the way to Dublin. Jason, you didn't have to cross come Kevin to Street. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And thank you, Katie. It's yeah. been great. Yeah, no, it's really so fun. You're, you're very good. And that brings this episode of the Dublin Gothic podcast to a close. This podcast was produced by Ian Dumphy and Benedict Schlepper Connolly with Ian Dumphy on sound. For more from Radio Molly, visit radio.molly.ie.